Enter the Ebony Tower Podcast, a resource, conversation, and community for and by brilliant yet underrecognized and underrepresented scholars of color. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Ebony Tower. Today, we are welcoming a very special guest to our Scholar Spotlight. We are spotlighting Dr. Carrie Ann Rockamore, founder and CEO of the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, and the author of The Black Academic's Guide to Winning Tenure Without Losing Your Soul. Today, we'll talk about Dr. Rockamore's background, the work of the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, and the keys to success in academia. Welcome, Dr. Rockamore. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, we are so excited, um, and I'm pretty sure our listeners will gain a lot of insight from you. So, thank you. So, um, our first question is, and often we like to start this off by asking people about their graduate school experience. So, we wanted you to tell us a little bit about your graduate school experience. What did you study? I studied my PhDs in sociology, and uh, my experience, um, well, it was probably much like many people's, kind of profoundly isolating and miserable, but also with some uh, joyful highlights. It's hard, right? I mean, I remember it as the hardest years of my life. Also, uh, it was a time when I made relationships and friendships that have sustained me in my professional life for many, many years. That's really good to hear. I am in the thick of graduate life. I am, you know, working on my IRB for my dissertation. Um, and Rachel literally just graduated with her PhD. So we understand, oh. yes, we understand what you're talking about. It's, it's really nice to hear that you have relationships that uh, continue to sustain you. So that's great to hear. And thinking about your experience, you described it as isolating, which a lot of us feel. And and to what extent did your graduate school experiences kind of motivate you to start the or develop the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity? How did that get started? Well, it's very tied because, of course, um, that experience of isolation doesn't go away when you become a faculty member. Oftentimes it's quite exacerbated because you don't have the closeness of that cohort experience of fellow graduate students. So, you know, my tenure track experience was miserable to the 10th power of what I experienced in graduate school. Uh, And it just struck me that there has to be a different way. And I think for me, the most difficult part of all of it was that I could just never get anyone to tell me how shit really works. (laughs) It wasn't that I didn't have any mentors. I always had people assigned to me as mentors, but those people, um, it was always like I was trying to beg the secret knowledge out of them. Right. So it was like, I asked the right question in the right way and they were in the right mood. I might get a little piece of, Uh, information that was useful. And I just felt like I spent so much time trying to figure out 
how things work, how to navigate the politics, how to navigate conflict with people who have more power than you and are going to be voting on your tenure, um, how to be highly productive and have a life. It was like I just had to work so hard to figure it out that it just struck me that nobody else should have to work that hard. Um, that in fact, uh, it would be so much better if we just made this information available to people. We just made the secret knowledge openly available so that people could use that energy on what matters on their teaching, on their scholarship, on their life. (laughs) So for me, whenever I have a really miserable experience, um, it's just in my nature to want to create something so that other people don't have to go through that, or at least to ease the journey for other people. Wow. That's really amazing. And you're right. It's like, it's some crazy secret. So I guess to talk about how you've simplified this knowledge that you've gained, I'm curious, what would you say are the most important skills that graduate students need to develop? Well, we teach um, 10 skills, right? So there's certainly, uh, I won't go through all 10 of them, but I think, honestly, if I had to say what are the three most important for graduate students, the first one is developing a daily writing habit. And I know I often sound like a broken record on this, but uh, what we know from mountains of research is that the most productive academic writers write every day. And, um, you know, because in academia, uh, your currency, the currency is publication. So if you're not highly productive, uh, you constrain your choices and your opportunities. And so developing that daily writing habit, I would say, is the number one skill. And You know, what's funny about it is that I'm putting it as number one because what I notice when I work with graduate students is that people have such a story about writing. Uh, They have such a story, I mean, like really deep, rigidified, lifelong stories about writing. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of people are in the binge and bust pattern, right? They won't start something until a deadline is breathing down their neck and they can't put it off any longer. Uh, Many people uh, have stories about the binge and bust. Like, you know, I can't possibly, you know, something happens at 3 a.m. when that something's due the next day, you know, just a creative well opens up for me and I couldn't possibly recreate that on a daily basis. Um, the kinds of stories that people have to really justify and rationalize that binge and bust, they're really deep. And, you know, I think the reality is that we can sustain that when we're um, young and energetic and undergraduates. And as we go to graduate school, it becomes harder and harder because you can't binge or overnight write a dissertation, right? The projects get bigger that you can't um, binge write a grant proposal because the competition is so high. So, you know, things get longer and harder and the competition goes up and the expectations go up. And also we get older, right? And so I couldn't pull an all-nighter if my life depended on it at this point. Our lives get increasingly complicated, right? Yeah. And, you know, if we're living in a household with other people, 
they're also not particularly finding it thrilling um, when we're pulling all-nighters. So again, I think um, for me, that's the number one skill because it pulls up our procrastination, it pulls up our perfectionism, it pulls up our time management, it pulls up our ability to say no, it pulls up what we're prioritizing. It just pulls so many things up into it that this is why I can see such a dramatic shift and a difference between people once they develop a daily writing habit versus if they can't. Because if they can't, whatever's keeping them from doing it is what's going to keep them from being successful in their academic career. So we might as well figure that out right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. What you just said, it resonates so much with me, especially as I'm trying to think about, I have two years or a year and a half to write this dissertation. How do I do it so that I am not so stressed out with trying to do everything at the last minute? And I am actually looking into your dissertation success program, you know, partly because I want to develop develop those good skills and partly because I, I know that there is like a accountability aspect of it. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the dissertation success program, um, what makes it so successful, who, it, who is it designed for, and you know, what are students saying about it? Sure. So we, uh, we really built our reputation on a faculty success program, right? So we designed, uh, we started off with a 12 week, uh, camp, if you will, for tenure track faculty. And what we tried to do is like, look, let's design this thing. If we know that there's 10 skills that help people to thrive in the academy, and by thrive, I mean have explosive productivity and have a life. We know that there's, it really takes 10 skills to do that. What we did is we designed a program where we would teach one of those skills every week. And then we would have uh, your homework every week would be to actually um, experiment with what we just taught you, right? And to layer those skills, layer those change behaviors on top of each other. So we were really successful with this. We got amazing outcomes. Uh, We have been doing that for eight years consistently. We see people becoming more productive and having greater work-life balance, So I mention it because it was just for tenure track faculty. And so finally, a group of (laughs) graduate students were like, "Uh, how dare you? (laughs) (laughs) How dare you have something for faculty and not have something for us? How dare you know what these skills are and not design something that's specific for us? And how dare you be doing this for all this time and you've forgotten about us? And we felt terrible. You know, the reason we started with faculty is because our primary client is the university. And regrettably, universities are extremely willing to uh, invest in the success of faculty, particularly tenure track faculty, and a bit less enthusiastic about investing in the success of graduate students. (laughs) So uh, when you're trying to get something new off the ground, you want to go for the home run. So we realized, yes, we... uh, Uh, needed to either open up the program to graduate students, which we thought about that idea for a while, but then we realized, no, graduate students have a really different set of, these skills might be the same, but they're going to actually look different um, if you apply them to the graduate student context. 
So we just decided, um, let's create a program for graduate students. Um, we beta tested it for a couple semesters. And what happened was uh, our graduate students always give us feedback, whether we ask or not. <laughs> <laughs> so our graduate students were like, this is awesome. Um, we love that we're developing that daily writing habit, that we're mastering these skills, um, that we're moving ahead with dissertations. People are finishing dissertations. But what people wanted is they wanted it to be um, part of their institution's membership. In other words, they needed it to be free for them. And they needed it to be um, they needed to be able to start it whenever they wanted to, not on, uh, you know, we run our faculty success program every semester. So there's a hard stop and end date. So we really heard that feedback and we basically embedded it within our annual membership. So uh, universities pay for the membership and graduate students can access uh, the program whenever they want. So we made it able to be starting it on demand. Uh, and again, it's, it's, it's very similar. It's every week we're teaching you one of the skills that you need to complete your dissertation. And every week there's an invitation to actually try that, not to think about it, not to analyze it, not to overanalyze it, not to create a story about why it works for all the other humans, but not for you, but to actually develop that experimental mindset of, hmm, let me try this practice. Let me collect data on myself. If things get better, keep doing it. If things get worse, stop. <laughs> so it's 12 weeks. And there's, you know what, we take you week by week through new skills to learn and invite you to actually experiment with them. And the accountability mechanism is a bit different. Uh, in our faculty program, uh, we have faculty who act as coaches to other faculty in the program. For the dissertation success program, there's peer accountability. In other words, um, people commit to daily writing, for example, as one of the skills, and we create an online community where your peers are supporting one another in getting the writing done. And it is such a powerful practice to actually write every day that once you get into it and see how much more productive you are, how much faster the dissertation process goes, it, it becomes quite self-reinforcing, but people get so enthusiastic about it that they, it's, you know, sometimes people call us a cult. <laughs> Um, but we're, if we are, we're the cult of joy and productivity. So it's a good cult. Uh, but people bring other people in. They support each other. They um, hold each other's feet to the fire. And it becomes a community quite unlike the community that most people have on their campus. In other words, oftentimes when graduate students get together, um, it's very easy to slide in the downward spiral of complaining, of ain't it awful of really talking about all the intractable structural problems. Um, and there's a real, uh, whew, it's a real energy to that. Um, I know when I have those conversations, I often feel completely drained uh, at the end of them. What we do is we try to create a community in which, uh, not that ignores those things, those things are real, but that the energy of the group interaction is about supporting one another, about helping everyone to succeed, and is about breaking through whatever resistance you have on that day 
to get the writing done. So I mention all those things because really, I think it's the deeper dynamics of community. Um, it's the deeper ways that people move from isolation into connectedness that actually, like to me, that's the richness of what it is. Yes, you learn a bunch of skills. Um, yes, it's about getting more productive. But more than anything, we're all human beings. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want other people to support us in living our highest potential. And anything that we can do to support that, to me, that's what makes a difference in people's experience. Uh, well, I'm so happy you brought up relationships and fraught relationships in graduate school. Um, we've been actually getting a lot of questions from listeners asking about what to do with um, interdepartmental conflict. And I saw that one of the skills the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity identifies is um, has something to do with how to navigate a healthy conflict in academia. So can you explain some of that for us and also talk about how graduate students are also a part of that conversation? Sure. You know, I'm sure you have both seen unhealthy conflict <laughs> because <laughs> it's not pretty uh, and it is so pervasive. And, you know, I think part of having so much unhealthy conflict, in addition to all of the kind of broad context of racism and sexism and homophobia, et cetera, et cetera, there's also just this pattern among academics where everybody gets this really bad advice of pick your battles, right? And pick your battles sort of means um, stuff everything down, um, until you can't take it anymore and then pick up a sword and shield and go to battle. <laughs> so, I just want to make the gentle loving suggestion that that is really not terribly healthy. And it's, um, I think it creates many of the dynamics that we see where people have they stuff down, stuff down, stuff down, and then one thing happens and it explodes. And that explosion looks so disproportionate to what actually just happened, but is fueled by all of that stuff down energy, right? Because when we don't resolve a conflict, it doesn't go away, right? That anger can build. It can take root in our bodies. It can turn into rage. Um, it doesn't just go away, right? So, you know, healthy conflict is just this, you know, little idea that maybe, just maybe, <laughs> you know, picking your battles isn't really a great approach. And that instead, what would happen if we just acknowledge the fact that anytime there are two or more people in relationship, there is, there's going to be conflict. Like that's normal. That's part of being human. And if you get a bunch of really smart people in one place and there's all kinds of power dynamics, there's going to be a lot of conflict. <laughs> instead of trying to avoid it, what would happen if we just learn how to get comfortable with it? We learn the skill of having it in such a way that it doesn't damage our professional relationships. And, and we do it in such a way that 
um, it actually strengthens our relationships because you know how it is when you have a really good conflict with someone, it actually strengthens your relationship. You respect them more, you work to a resolution and you keep it moving. Right. So I think, you know, I just would say briefly that part of the things to avoid around healthy conflicts. Um, number one, I, which I see a lot of, and I'm, I'm really, uh, going to say this around graduate students specifically. Um, One thing I see a lot of is people don't go directly to the person that they're having the conflict with. And instead they go to social media and they go and put the conflict out in front of other people looking for validation of their viewpoint instead of going directly to and navigating the conflict with the person they're having it with. And this really rarely turns out well, uh, because when we're having conflict, we want to have it directly, not with a whole group of people. Um, It's also the case that many people, bless their hearts, um, they want to try to resolve conflict over email. This doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work because we can't pick up all the cues, right? We can't, uh, things sound always so much more harsh in terms of email. And, you know, I think the other thing I see people do is they just try to avoid all contact, all conflict whatsoever. And that also is not a particularly successful strategy. So, you know, I think having healthy conflict is first and foremost, recognizing that conflict is normal. It's not something bad. Um, It's something that happens when human beings are in relationship with each other. I think we have to get very real when we're talking um, about being a graduate student that there are intense power dynamics at work. Even if they're not playing out at the moment, as a graduate student, when you're having a conflict with a dissertation chair, with committee members, with the director of graduate studies, even with a faculty member that you're TAing for or being an RA for, like, let's just be real about it. There's a huge power differential there. So being real about that and actually understanding how to navigate that and not ignoring it, right? So in many cases, having healthy conflict, um, you know when it happens, when somebody says something or does something and you get triggered, right? Uh, It's really deciding in that moment, am I going to, in this specific incident, am I going to push back or am I going to pull back? What do I have to gain? What do I have to lose? And if I'm going to push back, what is an appropriate way to do so? Uh, Because many people not being comfortable with conflict, they go straight from zero to 60, right? My mentor always used to say, I only had two modes, do nothing or slash tires. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to learn that there's a whole lot of gray in between doing nothing and slashing someone's tires. So, you know, really understanding that like, wow, there's literally dozens of ways that we can respond in any given moment. And just really, you know, my favorite set of tools is a book called Nonviolent Communication. And it's really pretty simple method. Um, It's really about getting clear in the moment about what's happening, about how you feel about it, about what you need, and really presenting in an energy that invites a healthy conversation, which is really hard to do when you're triggered. And honestly, sometimes people do things um, that I'm so profoundly triggered. It's actually at that moment makes more sense for me to pull back and get myself back together and then um, re-engage. And maybe the last thing I'll say about it is 
I think it's just also super important for us to be able to have really strong places, spaces, friendships, groups of people who are not other academics, who we have the ability to fully vent without judgment, without restriction, without um, anything, but are not people who are connected to a feedback loop where we are. In other words, um, I always have a group of girlfriends that I can just speak my truth. And you know what? They don't, they're not connected to anyone else that I work with. I know they will hear me. I know for them, I'm always right. (laughs) um, They will always sort of just let me get it all out and it's full messiness. And I can really always use that group to, to really let it out. Because again, we don't want to be stuffing things down. We want to be letting them out, but we want to be able to have multiple places, multiple spaces, multiple relationships so that we preserve in our professional relationships we preserve them, right? No con- one conflict is going to take them out because academia is such a small world. It is such a small world and our discipline is even smaller and it's so tiny that in fact, we can't really afford to burn bridges here, there, and everywhere over specific conflicts. Mm, mm, that was really great advice. I like to echo your sentiment about social media. I know it's becoming a very popular space like Facebook groups and, and things of that nature to kind of vent about doctoral life or life as a faculty member. But like you said, I think it's always important to just be a little conscious of what we're posting and and who might be there because you don't want to burn any bridges. And also, like you said, if you're not communicating with the person that you need to be communicating with, then nothing will really get solved. So yeah, that's pretty good advice. Just like in a relationship, like if I go around and complain about my husband to everybody but my husband, Nothing's getting resolved (laughs) with him directly. He's the person I should be navigating with directly. And of course, um, I'm only exacerbating the tension between us by running him down everywhere else. And so um, certainly our uh, colleagues aren't uh, spouses, but I think when we think about it, it's so easy to go vent somewhere else instead of having the courage and developing the skills to just go directly to the person and have the conflict. And the more we do it, the more comfortable we get with it, the easier it is. And look, I'm going to say one more thing, which is that especially for people of color, there are so few ways that we can express anger, much less rage, that aren't coded, that aren't profoundly seen through various types of negative lenses that for us, we have to be extra skilled at conflict because uh, for us to even raise a voice, um, to make a pointed uh, comment in a faculty meeting, to call somebody on a microaggression, we have to be very skilled in how we do that because it's so easy to get read as the angry black woman as somebody who I no longer feel safe with or somebody's acting threatening or emotional or hysterical or out of control, I could go down the list, right? That it behooves us to be extra skilled in conflict, to get comfortable with it and to discover if there's anything making us uncomfortable, what's that about? And how do we get comfortable with that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in, in thinking about mistakes that we 
as people who are navigating academia make, uh, what would you say is the biggest faux pas newly minted PhDs make? Well, I would say the biggest mistake that I see is when people don't align how they spend their time with their priorities. And in the case of newly minted PhDs, especially tenure track faculty, your priorities are in that moment being externally imposed by your tenure and promotion criteria, right? So if the way that you're spending your time every day is not aligned with how you're going to be evaluated for promotion and tenure, that is a huge mistake. So for example, I did this, so I don't have any judgment around it. Uh, When I started uh, as a faculty member, I love teaching. (laughs) I mean, I love teaching. It is really, I don't just love teaching. I am a teacher and that's who I am in the world. And I would spend, you know, all of my time, the vast majority of my time on teaching. And I would spend a little bit of time or whatever extra I could eke out on my service. And guess what? There was no time left for my research and writing. So I would say, oh, I'm going to, if I have time, I'll write at the end of the day, or I'm going to write on the weekend, or I'm going to write on Thanksgiving break or spring break or Christmas break. Oh, actually, I'm going to get all my writing done in the summer. I'm going to get a year's worth of writing done in the summer. And you know what? It doesn't work because my institution was very clear that a large percentage of my tenure evaluation is going to be based on my research productivity. So yes, I was a great teacher. I had great evaluations. My students absolutely loved and adored me. And guess what? I wasn't getting any, any work done. And so, you know, I think you can think about this in any stage of the academic life cycle. What are your priorities when you're a graduate student? Well, for most graduate students, it's finishing your dissertation and getting a postdoc or getting a job. So if you actually say, for example, looked at how you spend your time, or let's be more concrete, how did you spend your time last week? And if we actually imagine the pie chart of priorities, right? Uh, Finish dissertation, get a job. You know, if those are the highest priority, if we look at how you spend your time last week, um, did you spend the biggest chunks of your time on that activity? Did you spend your highest energy chunks of time on that? activity. Um, often what we do in our, in our boot camp is we ask people to, uh, for one week to track their time, how they spend their time in 15 minute increments. And then at the end of the week, we create a pie chart of how they actually spent their time. And then we compare it to their tenure and promotion criteria. <laughs> and it's a really powerful observation for people because most people, there is no alignment. They are not the same. These pie charts look extremely different. Um, and if how you're spending your time is very different than your evaluation criteria, guess what? Uh, it's... Uh, it's hard for those two things to add up. It's hard to be successful. And once people even get tenure, you know, your priorities are more self-defined than they were at any previous stage. But people often fail to even ask themselves, what are my priorities at this stage of my life? And is how I'm spending my time, literally, concretely, the minutes 
and the hours of my life, the one and only life I have, are those aligned with who I want to be in the world and who I'm becoming? Are they aligned with my personal and professional priorities? And so again, you know, this idea of aligning your time and your priorities, you know, those priorities can be interpreted in different ways based on what stage you're in or just based on your own perspective. But that is the biggest mistake that I see. And so the result is people are working all the time. They're completely exhausted. They get sick easier because they're exhausted. Um, They're constantly feeling guilt and shame about what they're not doing, even though they're working all the time, because that high priority work isn't getting done and they know it's not getting done. So they just feel like they keep sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole. Uh, I love how you are so straightforward about things. Uh, you remind me of like, everyone has that one auntie who just calls it like she sees it. It's so wonderful. It's so refreshing. Uh, and I'm about to start a postdoc. So actually maybe I'll just like take a second to do a personal question. <laughs> do you think that, it, do you give similar advice for people who are in that postdoc transition looking to get tenure track? Yeah. And you know what you're priorities are, right? I mean, you need to be um, publishing, you need to be uh, getting yourself ready for the job market and being on the job market. Uh, What I see for a lot of postdocs is they forget that the space that they're in is temporary, right? They're in a nebulous space. They're just there for one, two, maybe three years. Um, And they start getting way overly involved and invested in the space that they're in, Um, to the detriment of time and those spent on that high priority activity, right? And so they're doing a bunch of stuff, but they're doing a bunch of low priority stuff that is not going to be relevant to their long-term goals. So it's the same idea. What are your priorities as a postdoc, right? Um, literally what is the pie chart of success? What are the pieces and how big are they in that pie? And then really looking at how am I spending my time? Because quite frankly, you're going to get invited to do a whole lot of things. People are going to be really happy that you're there. And one has to be especially strategic in that postdoc moment about what you say yes to and what you say no to, because there will be no other moment in your academic career that's like your postdoc moment. You're not only trying to be successful in that moment, you're not only trying to get that tenure track job, but you're also trying to put a whole lot of irons in the fire so that a whole lot of pieces in a pipeline so that they will pop once you get that tenure track job, right? So it's really, um, it is a moment that's unlike any other in your academic career. And anytime we have special moments like that, we want to be able to maximize how we spend our time. Okay. That's awesome. That's amazing advice. And yeah. So helpful. Um, so I've seen your Monday motivation emails, um, and they're so amazing. They give really great leadership and development advice. And so I kind of wondered what advice, I mean, you started off saying you're a little bit annoyed about telling people that they need to develop better, healthier writing habits. Um, (laughs) but I guess, you know, uh, is there any other advice you're tired of giving? Um, well, yes. Uh, it's definitely the one that people fight me on the most. And 
I'm just always so shocked because it's so obvious to me. And I wouldn't even classify it as advice. It is an empirical fact. (laughs) There is a ton of research on it. It's not something that I'm just saying, oh, it kind of works for me. You might want to try it. And that is getting eight hours of sleep a night (laughs) because uh, what from a mountain of research is that sleep is directly related to cognitive performance. And so if your cognitive performance is your bread and butter, get your sleep. (laughs) I don't know why this is like so dramatic and people are like, you don't understand. I, unlike the other humans, am perfectly fine on four hours of sleep. It's like, Actually, what you're saying is that you have a habit of getting four hours of sleep and still functioning. What I'm inviting you to do is to experiment with this crazy idea just for a week, arrange for yourself eight hours of sleep and just see how differently your brain functions. This is another thing we do in our faculty boot camp. Uh, I lay out the argument around sleep and the homework for the week is to sleep eight hours a night. And this is the week when everybody goes bananas. People are so mad at me and I get all these nasty emails. Wow. um, Seriously? (laughs) Oh, gosh, yes. And then by the middle of the week, I start getting all these sweet emails saying, oh, my gosh, I didn't believe this was going to work. But now my brain is like a supercomputer. (laughs) And I just roll my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) That is hilarious. You know, I actually did not expect the advice to be about sleep. I I thought it was going to be something else, but that's true. Good advice. No, because turbocharges every aspect of your waking life. And I totally get it. There are moments in life when it's not possible. Like if you have a brand new baby, right? Um, If you are, you know, sitting side by side with somebody in hospice. There are moments, but I'm not talking about those moments. And of course we give a pass for the people in those moments, but I'm talking about your regular every day to day. And again, part of why these practices are challenging and matter are because it's often the case when we ask people, why, why aren't you sleeping eight hours a night? Well, it may be just because there's some old bad habits at work, right? It may be that people just aren't prioritizing their physical health. Maybe it's that people think they have to serve everybody else before they take care of themselves. There are so many layers upon layers upon layers that by just, again, experimenting with something, it brings all that other stuff up to the surface. It brings all of our limiting beliefs, all of our mindset issues, all of our bad habits, all of our excuses and stories and rationalizations. It brings them all up to the surface. And that's great because then we can actually look at them. We can ask, is that serving me? Right. And again, so many of these things, especially for graduate students, our holdovers from undergrad. (laughs) You know, maybe you stayed up until 2 a.m. every morning. Maybe you made it on six hours or four hours of sleep. Maybe that was okay. Great. But now you're operating at a different level of competition, a different level of expectation. And guess what? The things that may have worked at a previous stage in our lives often no longer serve us in the next stage, right? It's the same thing when you go from being a graduate student to being a postdoc or a postdoc to being a professor. 
the things that worked in the previous stage, they just ain't going to work anymore, right? Because you are in a wholly different level. And if we keep trying to make the old things work, we're going to continually find ourselves not operating at our highest potential and potentially not succeeding at that new level. And so again, it sounds like really silly and obvious sleep eight hours right every day. It can sound to people to be very superficial. The depth of it comes up. The depth of it is revealed when you stop thinking about it and playing it with it as an idea or a tip or a trick or a hack. And you actually do that shit because when you do it, all of the stuff that's keeping you from succeeding is going to come up and you get to ask, is it serving me? And if it's not, am I ready to change? And what do I need to do to make that change? Mm, That's really good. That's really good. Mm, Tingly feelings. I'm going to try it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, um, you know, kind of transitioning a little bit, you have developed a strong public persona, you know, in regard to, you know, a speaking career, you know, your National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, and just, you know, you're all over the place. And I know that a lot of graduate students, particularly of color, they think that they're going to go into the academy and become this public person. And some people have a lot of a lot of difficulty transitioning to that or finding their foothold in, you know, what is their public identity. And so I just wanted to say, like, what tools did you use to make your public transition And what advice would you have to other graduate students or faculty members who want to have a broader impact outside of traditional academic publications? That's a great question. You know, I think anytime we're trying to do a new thing, I think we want to do a couple things. We want to figure out what are the new skills that we need? What's the new sort of mentoring network that we need to get that thing done? What are the things we need to let go of? And how does the path from where we are now to where we want to go actually look? So, you know, if it's something like, uh, I think for many new faculty thinking about, yes, I want to be um, a professor and I want to do some work as a public intellectual. Okay. Well, what are the skills you need to be a public intellectual? Uh, You need to, uh, you know, even if it's something as simple as learning how to speak briefly, concisely, and in sound bites, (laughs) even if it's about how to navigate social media, even if it's about how to get on the radar of people who do the bookings that put you in the spaces to have that platform. Um, There's all kinds of skill sets that you need to learn. And so let's you know, first it's just mapping out what are those things. Um, I have to, you know, give a plug for NCFDD. We have a, uh, we have a series on becoming a public intellectual that really not only lays out those skills, but also, um, interviews a number of people reflecting on their own journey, uh, in that way. So what are the skills? Uh, who are the mentors that I need? My magic mentors are always people who already have the thing I want, and they just got it pretty recently. <laughs> so I love that sweet spot for mentors because 
Um, a lot of times I have people who served as mentors for me, but they don't have the specific thing that I want. Right. Uh, when I was thinking about leaving the Academy, I was going around and asking a bunch of mentors who have never left. (laughs) And of course they were saying, don't leave. (laughs) It'll be the worst thing ever. So again, we want to ask people who already have the thing that we want and they've got it pretty recently. In other words, you know, when people have something and they've had it for 30 years, even if they can tell you how they got it, that information isn't necessarily going to be fresh, right? A lot may have changed, even if their recollection is perfect. So I'm always looking for people who are maybe three to five years ahead of me in that thing that I want to do because they still have fresh contacts They still have a fresh network. They can make fresh introductions. They know how things are happening right now. And they still have some bruises, (laughs) some fresh bruises from the process. They can very easily articulate what their mistakes were, right? And again, I always want to be thinking, what do I need to let go of? Um, And often the thing, whenever, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm stepping into something new, I have a lot of fear. Um, a lot of, I'm just afraid I'm going to humiliate myself, do something wrong, look like a fool, do something I can never come back from. I mean, I just have mountains of fear, mountains of that, uh, imposter syndrome and all that's normal when you're trying something new. And I'm always presencing myself to it so that it's not controlling me. Um, I really much prefer to just get clear about what my fears are and work towards, um, even if I can't fully let them go, if they're in my awareness, they have less power over me than if they're just operating under the surface. If I can get in conversation with my fear and my resistance, um, I'm much more likely to figure out what support I need. And ultimately, um, sometimes there's some habits we need to let go of. Sometimes there's some internal stories that we need to let go of. Uh, I know for me, I'm a little bit shy. And so it's hard for me sometimes to, and it's anxiety provoking for me to do speaking. Um, When I first started, I would often throw up before I gave a talk and that's how much anxiety I had. And so again, a lot of that's about fear, but a lot of it's about a story, you know, some deep childhood stories about, you know, you're going to get in trouble if you're speaking the truth to power, you're going to get punished, you're going to get this, you're going to get that, right? Really coming to terms with that stuff. Because again, it's those deep stories that often keep us from our greatness, right? They're those fears that keep us from doing what we're truly intended to do. And I don't know about you, but I, you know, I only have one life and I don't want it to be about fear. And I don't want it to be about not doing things because I'm just so scared of failing. Wow. I think it's really wonderful how the advice you're giving isn't just about success, but is also about self uh, reflection and also just learning a little bit more and peeling back those layers, as you said, um, to what it is that's holding you back and what it is you really want from life. Um, and so we have our final classic 
the Ebony Tower question that we pose for all the scholars who come on to the podcast and also who get interviewed on our website. And that question is, what books or, in some cases, television shows or podcasts are you currently reading? So we're putting together this Ebony Tower syllabus. And so what would you like to contribute to our syllabus? Well, this may seem like an odd contribution. But I... <laughs> no such thing. <laughs> um, I am currently rereading something I, I reread every summer and it's a book that was really transformative in my life. It's called Your Money or Your Life and it's written by Joe Dominguez and Vicki Robin and it's just, you know, it's a book about money but it's also a book about time and a book about figuring out what kind of life you want. And a book that's really an invitation to get into agency around your money. Let me be honest, I read it when I was in graduate school. I've been reading it every summer since. And I think money is one of those things that gets into that pile of stuff that uh, it's easy to have a complaining conversation about. But we so rarely have empowering conversations, supportive conversations, conversations about how you get control over your debt, how you get conscious and intentional about your money, how you develop financial integrity and financial intelligence. So I, it may be an odd suggestion, but I think money is something graduate students often talk about but rarely talk about in this type of way. That's a great contribution. I really love that. Um, Daphne, do you have anything else you want to ask? I do not, but I was just going to say, you know, Dr. Rockamore came on, you know, we're going to make academic moves with this latest suggestion. We're also going to make some money moves. Uh, so I, I just feel like I, I have to, I'm going to get my life together. We're actually going to include all of the resources that Dr. Rockamore mentioned in the description of the episode. Episode, as well as the book will be on our Ebony Tower syllabus. Dr. Rockmore, did you have anything to add before we close? No, I just wanted to thank you so much for creating what you've created. It takes a lot of courage to get something up and running and especially to do something that is such a gift to other people. So I just want to acknowledge you and really thank you for what you've done. No, thank you. There was something that you mentioned earlier in an interview, and you talked about how, you know, when you struggle, when you go through a difficulty, your first action is to figure out how you can make things better for others. And I think that was the vision that Rachel and I have for the Ebony Towers. Like, we go through these things, we don't want people to feel like they're alone. But we also want to give to others because it's not a competition. We can all make it if we just like reach back and help out each other. So I appreciated you saying that. And that's kind of our motto as well. Mm. Well, all right, listeners, thank you for tuning in once again to the Ebony Tower. We will put links to uh, the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, as well as, you know, links to various interviews and resources that you can find that come from Dr. Rockamore. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thanks for being with us, everyone. And remember to tell your universities to sign up for uh, the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity. Oh, yes. I'm actually working on my university right now. So yes, have your university to sign up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Rockamore. 
If you're interested in being featured on the Ebony Tower, have topic ideas, or simply want to ask Ebony anything, visit our website, www.theebonytower.com, or email us at infotheebonytower.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Ebony Tower. And please don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.